0: Today's scripture reading is uh, from Romans chapter 5, verses 2 and 6 through 8. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. You see, just at the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're in the fourth week this morning of a seven-week series on the subject of parenthood. And the first week was sort of an overview, and then the the last couple weeks we've been starting to make a list of the things that kids need most from their parents. So two weeks ago, in week two, we talked about the first thing kids need is a, a loving, passionate relationship between their mom and dad. And then last week... So the second thing they need is parents who teach and discipline. The two main jobs, tasks of parenting to teach and, to, and to, do, to discipline. So this morning is the third thing kids need from their parents. The title of the message is acceptance. The third thing children need from their parents is acceptance. Um, and if you want to think of the husband-wife passion relationship as the context of good parenting, then the... Teaching and disciplining is the task of good parenting, and this acceptance is the the disposition, the orientation, the emotion of good parenting. So the question for us this morning is, do we accept our kids? Probably, at least to to some extent, but maybe not as much as, as we think we do. So three sections to this morning's message. First, the obstacles to acceptance. Second, the expression of acceptance. And third, the foundation of acceptance. The obstacles to acceptance, the expression of acceptance, and the foundation of acceptance. And we're going to spend the most time on the first of those three, then a little less on the second, and then the least on the third. Before we get started, let's pray. Father, we want to offer acceptance to our kids. We want them to accept themselves. We want them to feel safe safe and warm, and loved, as we look this morning at some of the obstacles to that, and how to do it, and, and where it really comes from, God, I pray that you would speak to us, I pray that you would give us wisdom, it's in your name we pray, amen. First, the obstacles to acceptance, and there are three, the, the first one, the first obstacle to acceptance is your child's uniqueness, accepting your kid even though they're unique, there's this tendency to want to think of our children as people who are supposed to become better, smarter, more ambitious versions of ourselves. Um, and I you know I somebody has to say this, so it might as well just be me. The world only needs one you. <laughs> and this tendency to want to make our kids like the things that we like, do the things that we do. Is, is not helpful. It's unacceptance. It's not accepting them for who they are. God's plan is that everybody would be different. If you look at these first verses on your insert, this is section one at the top. If you want to pull this out, it's in your bulletin, and you can follow along during the message. Section one, God works through different people in different ways. Each person should judge his own actions and not compare himself with others. Then he can be proud for what he himself has done. This is one of the great tasks of parenting, teaching your child not to compare him or herself with others. But the only way they'll get that message is if you don't compare them to yourself, if you accept their uniqueness, if you just accept them for who they are. I think that adoptive parents are often ahead of the curve on this one because it's just more obvious that their child's going to be different. Biological parents are a little bit slower because you're just stuck with this idea, you know, but they're, they're half me. How did they turn out so weird? You know, it, it must be my spouse's fault. Um, but they're not, I mean, they're not half you. That's, that's the thing, you know, that's the beauty of genetic science and this whole notion of dominant and recessive genes. They're, they're not half you. Reese, for example, has blue eyes. Um, I don't have blue eyes. Brittany doesn't have blue eyes. But my maternal grandfather has blue eyes and her maternal grandfather has blue eyes. It's, it makes a lot more sense to think of them as one-eighth each of their great-grandparents or one-sixteenth each of their great-great-grandparents rather than half you. They're just this amazing cocktail of traits that God has put together just using your two families' gene pools as the raw material. If you look at the next verse, no, two verses down actually, the third verse in section 1, from Psalm 139. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. The kids are not our masterpieces. They're God's masterpiece. What that means is you don't know what they're going to look like when they're finished. So it's like you got got this, this seed packet with no label on it. You can give it good soil, you can water it, you can feed it, you can pull the weeds, but you're not going to get to choose what kind of flower grows. And even more importantly, maybe, you're not going to get to choose what season it blooms in. They're unique. They're different from you. And the first obstacle to acceptance is accepting them anyway. Because we like to accept things that are like us, not things that are different than us. Accepting them despite their uniqueness. The paradox here, of course, is that what that does is free them to emulate you and fall in their footsteps if they want to. Because then there's no pressure. If they know they're loved for who they are, if they know they're loved as someone who's unique, then if they want to emulate you, if they want to fall in their footsteps, they can. They don't have to react against that. They don't have to resent it. First obstacle to acceptance, uniqueness. Second obstacle to acceptance, that they're ordinary. Accepting your kids despite the fact that they're ordinary. And we'll spend the most time here because this is the one that's most difficult for New York parents. Um, if you look on in section two here, this is a few verses from, from various parts of scripture. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Dust, jars of clay, the Bible throughout places a, a big premium on humility, which means of the earth, made of dust. Humility just means knowing where you came from, knowing where you fit in the divine order. And yet today, you know, not, not quite the same premium value placed on this trait. Um, instead, it's more this kind of self-serving bias of always thinking of yourself... More highly than you ought. Probably more prevalent today than ever. This is why you have these really sincere and really bad American Idol contestants. Because you're, you're just, your thinking is clouded. You see things completely different than they really are in reality. You see things more, you see yourself and things connected to yourself more highly than you want, And this is pervasive when it comes to our kids. Everybody thinks their kid is special. Everybody in this room right now thinks. Yeah, everybody else does think that. Good thing my kid actually is special, you know. <laughs> everybody thinks that. And they're not. I don't know what else to say except they're not. They're not special. They're ordinary. They they are unique. They are one of a kind, but so is everybody else's kid. They're not special. Your kid is not special. And coming to accept them as just the ordinary person that they are is this this very large obstacle for people that put a a value on achieving. You say, well, it's not just me. Uh, Outside objective observers have have said the same thing. They've said, my my kid is special too. (laughs) They're lying to you. (laughs) All of society is in on this because everybody knows that parents are so invested in this that if you suggest that the kid isn't special, you invoke parental wrath upon yourself. Listen to this uh, middle school principal talking about parents at her school. She said, if the child is doing well in everything, it's like a badge for them that everything is okay. If their child is, God forbid, average, they panic. That's why there's so much grade inflation. Teachers are afraid that if they give anything less than an A, parents will blame their child's poor achievement on the teacher's lack of skill rather than on the child's limitations. So everybody else is in on it. It's this big joke that everybody's playing along with. Last year, uh, Brittany took me to see a live taping of a Prairie Home Companion, Garrison Keillor's show on NPR. And you probably know that he describes Lake Wobegon, the fictional town where it's broadcast from, as a place where all the women are strong, all the men are good-looking, and all the children are above average. And, and that's us today. That's our society today. We're kind of all in on this joke. It's gotten so bad that a parent would rather think their child is sick than think that their child has natural limitations. This is from uh, Wendy Mogul, the same clinical psychologist who I've read to you from the last few weeks. She says, The normal curve has disappeared. Parents seem to think that children only come in two flavors, learning, disabled, and gifted. If a parent brought their child to me to be evaluated, and if after conducting tests I happily reported to the parents that their child was within normal limits, the parents were frequently disappointed. In their view, a diagnosable problem was better than a normal, natural limitation. A problem can be fixed, but a true limitation requires adjustment of expectations and acceptance of an imperfect son or daughter. If there is a diagnosis specialists and tutors can be hired, drugs given, treatment plans made. Parents can maintain an illusion that the imperfection can be overcome. Their faith in their child's unlimited potential is restored. We'd rather think our kids are sick than just believe the truth that they're ordinary, that they're ordinary. This is acceptance, accepting your kid despite the fact that they're ordinary. And if you don't Get this. If you don't get this right, there's there's the danger that you can seriously screw your kids up. If they think that they have to achieve at a certain level to fit with your idea of them, there are serious consequences. This was this summer, another psychologist, Madeline Levine, came out with this book, Teach Your Children Well, Um, and let me read a little bit from the review in the New York Times says, Levine works with teenagers in affluent Marin County, California, this is right across the Golden Gate Bridge to the north, who are depleted, angry, and sad as they compete for admission to a handful of big-name colleges. And with parents who can't steady or guide them, so lost are they in the pursuit of goals that have drained their life of pleasure, contentment, and connection. One academically talented girl in Levine's care is knocked off her feet by self-loathing and grief after she's rejected from a particularly desirable college. She lies in bed for days, Levine writes. She will not get up, and when I visit her at home, all she can say through her streaming tears is, it was all for nothing. I'm a complete failure. Other kids cheat, take drugs, drink, shut down, or worse still, keep up their tightrope act of parent-pleasing, ivy aiming high-achievement, while quietly, invisibly dying inside. The cost of this relentless drive to perform at unrealistically high levels is a generation of kids who resemble nothing so much as trauma victims. That's, what, that's the danger. That's the danger. And that's what parents do to their kids. Why? Why believe they're sick instead of believing they're ordinary? Why push them to those lengths? What's, what's the deal behind this? What's the issue? This is not a tough one. I mean, we are... Invested, so invested in our kids' performance because we, we think of their success as a reflection of us. Um, this, last week, Reese's preschool teacher, this is three year olds, told Brittany that Reese is the, the best behaved kid in the, in the class of like seven kids. And the question is why does that matter to me so much? Because it does. I mean, goodness knows it does and why 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 do i care seven little 3 year olds why do i care because i think that, that she's a reflection to the world of what i am like and if she's extraordinary that means i'm extraordinary to some extent that's unavoidable you know i mean there's this verse in proverbs on your insert the next one down a wise son brings joy to his father but a foolish son brings grief to his mother so to some extent, you're going to be wrapped up in your kid's success. But if you can't answer this question of, do I accept them no matter what? Do I accept them even if they're perfectly average? If you can't answer that, then, then you're putting your kid at risk. First, accepting them even though you're, they're unique, different from you. Second, accepting them even though they're perfectly ordinary. And the third thing is accepting them even though they're sinful. This is uh, the... Going back to week one, we talked about your kids are messed up, you know, and that means they're going to do messed up stuff. That means they're going to make bad choices and do things that are wrong just because they're wrong. You know why? Because the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree. This is how people are. This is how people are. If you look at the on the reverse of your insert now in section three, I've given you these verses a couple of times now, just putting them in front of you every week to remind you. The intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child. The hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts through their lives. And then this this famously universal indictment from Romans chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All all have sinned. Even your, your precious little kids. All have sinned. Um, and if you don't face that, if you don't accept that and look at that, then you're making things harder on them than you need to. This is, I came across this this week from a, a minister, another minister talking about an interaction he had with his daughter. Let me, let me read this to you. He said, Some time ago, one of my daughters did something she wasn't supposed to do, but she was denying it. The problem was that I didn't have incontrovertible proof. There was no smoking gun. And yet, the circumstantial evidence was overwhelming. So while we were riding in the car, I was doing a cross-examination trying to get her to break down, kind of like Gibbs on NCIS. But she was pretty savvy. In fact, at one point, she looked up at me with deep hurt and misty eyes and a quiver in the voice and trembling lip and said, Daddy, do you think I'd lie to you? I said, of course I think you'd lie to me, honey. Everybody I've ever known has lied to me at some point. It's not a good thing, but we all have the capacity for it. Honey, anybody who says they never lie, they're lying. Mostly I think you tell the truth. Mostly I do. But absolutely I think you'd lie. Suddenly it got real quiet in the back seat. So the key is not just knowing that they have this capacity for evil, but letting them know that you know. Letting them know that you see them as they really are. Because if you, if you act as if it's not there, if you refuse to look at it, if you just say, oh, I, I know you're a good kid deep down. you know, If you act as though every misbehavior is just this fluke of mood or circumstance, What you're doing then is creating this storm of conflict within their little heart. Because they know what's in there. They know it's there. They know the evil is there. And so they are left to assume, well, mom or dad wouldn't accept me if they knew what I was really like. You have to let them know. That you know. You have to let them know you know they're sinful. You know they're evil, just like you are. And you accept them anyway. You accept them in spite of that. Three obstacles to acceptance their uniqueness, their ordinariness, and then third and finally, their their sinfulness. So that's the first section. Like I said, we spent most of our time there, more briefly on the the second two sections. Um, The second one is the expression. Of acceptance. How do you let your kids know? If you do accept them, how do you communicate to them? Just three quick things here. The first is attention. Um, the two types of attention, one just kind of normal talking, interaction, attention um, is a way to say, I accept you, you know, I'm giving you my time. When we're sitting at the dinner table, Reese's most frequent line is, um, Dad, could you talk to me? And... Well, sure. What do you want to talk about? Uh, I don't know, you know. Or if I, she says, "Dad, you know, can you talk to me?" And I'm like, "Well, mom and I are doing something right now." But who will talk to me? <laughs> so just this interaction, this attention, is you know the first way of communicating acceptance. But then it's also it's not just the interaction and attention. It's also uh, study attention. You know, paying attention to your child in the sense that you become their student. You know what they're like and. Their tendencies, their habits, and I think that you know we, we get lazy with this as parents. We get stuck with a couple of like cliche generalizations. Oh yeah, my son is da da. My daughter is da da. And it's it's probably not even true. Maybe it was true one time, you know. And you're just too lazy to be scientific about it and actually watch and observe and see what they're really like. Most parents think they understand their kids, and they don't because they don't pay attention. They don't pay attention. They don't study. God does this to us. He pays attention to us. Um, You know that famous verse from Matthew about Jesus saying, every hair on your head is numbered by God. Or the the psalmist talks about, he knows when I lay down, he knows when I get up, he knows every path I take, he knows my ways, he knows what I'm going to say before I say it. God pays attention to us like this, the study type of attention. So That's the first way you communicate acceptance is through attention. I, you know, you're good enough for me to be interested in. You're good enough for me to talk to you. The second way is through affirmation. Through, I mean, this is very straightforward. You just say it. You know, I love you. I'm proud of you. Just speaking the acceptance verbally. Um, and, you know, I think that there's a good test for whether a kid needs affirmation or not, more affirmation. And that's to check their pulse. If they have a heartbeat, if they're breathing, they need more affirmation than you're giving them. You can just imagine them with a tattoo on their forehead that says, Affirm me. And with a a three year old, it's already about that obvious. Um, Reese is, I mean, constantly, she doesn't go five minutes without saying, Dad, watch. Mom, watch. Dad, make Anna watch. Um, And what is she doing? You know, I mean, it's like, these aren't like, Advanced skills, like watch me chew, you know what? Um, it's what is, you know, it's just so somebody can cheer or clap or say, you know, that's really cool, Reese. Um, her latest thing is moves, which are like just striking this weird pose with some prop, you know. Dad, watch this move. Oh, that's really cool, Reese. Dad, watch this move. Oh, wow, that looks just like the last move. You know, <laughs> moves because she wants affirmation, affirm me. She's just shouting it every minute of the day. Affirm me, affirm me, affirm me. And your kids may be less obvious about it as they get older, but they don't need it any less. It's still the exact same as they grow. They need that, that affirmation in the exact same way. So it's, it's saying it. It's saying it to them so they can receive it through their ears, not just you know the, the time and attention, but also affirming them, letting them know you love them. The first is uh, attention, second affirmation, and the third one is affection, physical affection, hugs and kisses. Um, this is the, the story, Jesus' story of the lost son. The, the son comes back, and we see that the language of acceptance is always physical. The father runs. The father throws his arms around the son. The father kisses him and caresses him. Acceptance is always communicated physically. You have to use touch to communicate acceptance. And, you know, I'd, I mean, maybe most important from the father. It, fathers, stereotypically, are less um, touchy feely. You know, I don't know if that's true anymore, but that's the stereotype at least. Um, and it's probably most important of all that the, the kid get the touch from the father. Uh, there's a lot of good research now showing that uh, if a girl decides to become sexually active as a teenager, there's a very strong correlation with lack of intimacy with dad. And that's not... I'm we're not, we're not trying to put blame on anybody just talking about what the research shows. This touch, this affection. And I think the, the key distinction here is just that you're offering it rather than asking to receive it. You're uh, meeting their emotional needs rather than wanting your emotional needs met. So I used to say to Reese, um, Hey, can I have a hug? You know, and most of the time you'd say, no. Because she's weird like that. Or unique, I mean unique, sorry. Um, so now I say, Reese, would you like a hug or a kiss or both? And 80% of the time she says, um, both. And, you know, if I'm walking by her and just give her a quick hug or a quick kiss, a lot of times she'll say, Dad, Dad, both, both. You're giving, you're giving, you're not asking to receive. Your kids need it. And I, I realize that most of the stuff I'm talking about here, all three of these things, attention, affirmation and affection. All of these are way easier with kids my age, you know, because of what I'm saying. They're way more obvious about it, and it's not that hard. Um, like, that's, that, that's a pretty small skill to learn, to to switch from saying, can I have a hug, to saying, can I give you a hug, or which of these would you like? Um, and as your kids get older, the the skill level increases. You have to grow with them. You have to figure out how to play the game at a higher level, how to express attention in a way that they can receive it. How to express affection in a way they can receive it. And it gets harder. And I don't know anything about that. But I know that it's true. I know that you have to, as your kids grow, you have to grow with them. Those are the three ways to express acceptance. Three obstacles first. And second, the three ways to express acceptance. Uh, the third section, and just a few minutes here before we close, the foundation of acceptance. What I'm afraid of is that somebody walking out this morning and think, okay, I've got it. You know, here's the three obstacles, got to get over those. Here's the three things I got to do to express acceptance. I think I can do this. And the problem with that is, uh, if you don't do something else, you will undercut all of those efforts. Say, well, what's the something else? You, you also have to accept yourself. You also have to accept yourself, or else you're going to be kind of washing away all this acceptance of them that you're doing. Um, just to take a couple of really small but uh, personal examples. So like if a mom is weighing herself two times a day on the scale, the daughter knows. The daughter knows. Whether she sees it or not, the daughter knows. She's psychic. She knows. If a dad is you know, cursing himself beneath his breath when he makes a little mistake or if he's you know, beating himself up about a bad decision for two weeks after it's happened, The son knows. The son knows. Whether he sees it or not, he knows. He just knows. And what that does is it says, well, my parents say they accept me, but I see them not accepting themselves. So what that means is they're kind of putting on a show for me. Deep down, I bet they're really just as critical of me as they are of themselves. How are you going to accept their... Uniqueness, if you haven't accepted your own uniqueness? How do you accept their ordinariness if you haven't accepted the fact that you're ordinary? How do you face their sinfulness if you haven't faced head on your own sinfulness? You cannot accept them unless you have accepted yourself. Say, okay, well, that's a nice, you know, profound sounding thought. Um, How do you suggest I go about doing that, accepting myself? There's only one way. You have to receive acceptance from an authoritative source. Acceptance can't come from the inside. It cannot be self-generated. You have to receive acceptance from an authoritative source. And that's what our parents are supposed to be for us. That's the job. And a lot of parents fall down on that job. Um, you, you know Instead of receiving this message of you're good enough, you receive this message of you're not good enough or this message of you're good enough when you do this or you're good enough when you don't do this or I, you know, I can accept you except for that, and let's not talk about that. I, I'm proud of you of everything except for that. So you don't get the acceptance from your parents that you're supposed to get, that they owe to you. Or even if you do, you, you outgrow it at some point. You know, your, your parents cease to be an authority figure in your life, and you outgrow that acceptance. In either case, whether you didn't receive it to begin with or whether you outgrow it, God wants us to go to him for that acceptance. There's a higher authority that we're supposed to go to for acceptance. And, you know, the thread throughout this whole series has been God is the model parent, which means God's already got this stuff figured out that we were talking about this morning. God already knows how to overcome the obstacles to acceptance. He's already overcome your ordinariness. He's over that. He's over your sinfulness. This is in section 4 now. If you look on the back of your insert, the first section, the first set of verses there, these remarkable lines from Romans chapter 5. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. What's that? We boast in the hope of the glory of God. We're bragging, we're, we're celebrating that we have been accepted by God and we're going to share in his glory. Well, how do you know? How do you know that? So look what's next. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It proves it. It proves it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't just love you for who you are. He died for you when you were still that way, when you were still ordinary, when you were still sinful. He died for you like that. It's the proof. It's the proof of that acceptance. And that's not just the the center of Christian belief. I mean, certainly it's that. That's what it means to be a Christian, you know, believing that. But it's, it's also the basis for Christian living, for Christian action. This is exactly the argument that Paul makes later in the same book, same letter. If you look at the next verse down on your program, still in section 4, after he says what he says above, then he goes on to say, Accept one another, then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. The acceptance you receive is the basis of the acceptance you give. You have to get this acceptance first before you have anything to offer. And you get it from God. You get that acceptance from God who accepts you even though you're ordinary and even though you're sinful. And the most tragic truth I know of is that God goes to these great lengths to accept us and to prove his acceptance to us. And then after all that, people reject him. People say, I don't believe in you. I don't believe in that. And you have to accept him in return. You have to accept what he's done for it to filter into your life. You have to believe it. The last uh, verse on your outline there, Jesus talking in John and in Revelation, at the very bottom he says, Whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. And then from Revelation, Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in. Accepting Christ is the foundation of receiving acceptance from God, which is then the foundation of being able to offer it to anyone, to your kids or to anyone else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are accepted by you, despite our sinfulness and despite our ordinariness. We thank you that you've gone to great lengths to demonstrate that acceptance to us. God, we want this acceptance to to come into our lives, to filter through the way we think and the way we feel and the way we perceive, and to be the foundation of the acceptance we offer to our kids. I pray that you would help us. I pray that you would give us strength. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, who, while we were still sinners, died for us.